Day 13 in the Heidelberg Catechism, our confession about the Lord Jesus Christ, part of it. Let's read question and answers 33 and 34 together. This is on page 528 in your book of praise. So there we ask about the Lord Jesus Christ. Why has he called God's only begotten son? Since we also are children of God. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural Son of God, we, however, are children of God by adoption through grace for Christ's sake. Why do you call him our Lord? Because he has ransomed us, body and soul, from all our sins, not with silver or gold, but with his precious blood, and has freed us from all the power of the devil to make us his own possession. Let's sing after the sermon from hymn 46, all the stanzas, 1 through 4 of hymn 46. Dearly loved people of the Lord, maybe you've seen the television show, people bring in something they think is interesting, it's a vase, a painting, they've got some idea, it should be worth Something, it shouldn't just be garage sales for 25 cents. Then they find out it's worth far more than they ever expected. It's a little camera from 1932 and it's worth three quarters of a million dollars. Have you ever had anything like that? Do you have anything like that? I think I can say for you, yes. We all have something far more valuable than we realize. That's our faith. Or more specifically, our Savior. Look at Paul's letter to the Colossians that we read from. In this letter, the Apostle Paul will, at some point, deal with false teachings that had infiltrated the church. That's especially in chapter 2. But first of all, look at how he begins this letter. What is chapter 1 all about? Chapter 1 of Colossians is all about the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's like the Apostle Paul has to sort of dust this off, remind, stir up the congregation to realize what's right under their very noses. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. All earthly rulers are in his hands. All things hold together in him. Then in chapter 2, Paul will say, In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I think I can safely say that not one of us fully comprehends what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. The greatness of his blood, the power of his spirit, the depth of his love, the extent of of his lordship. And we are a reformed church. What was the Reformation some 500 years ago really all about? You could look at it from a few different angles, but certainly this applies. In a way, the Reformation was all about this. The greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ was rediscovered. I had no more need for saints, 
No more need for superstitious rituals. No more fear of burning in purgatory. No need to buy indulgences. For Christ is everything. And if you have Christ, you have everything. In our Heidelberg Catechism, we come at it from two angles, also then in the Apostles' Creed, that Christ is God's only begotten Son and our Lord. And if you know those two things, if you confess those two things, what more do you really need? I put the sermon then under this theme, confess the greatness of Christ. And we'll look at the meaning of those two things, God's Son and our Lord. So here in our creed and catechism, we are again glimpsing the Trinity. That there are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, yet one God. That's certainly at the background of this. We also begin to see that there are differences between the persons. The Holy Spirit, we confess that he proceeds from the Father and the Son. And that's in one of the other creeds. Perhaps you know which one or one's. But the Son, however, He is the only begotten. What does that mean, though? Maybe you wonder, only begotten. That's not a usual word. In fact, you will not find that particular phrase, only begotten, in most English Bible translations today. Perhaps the word could be a bit of a mistranslation the Greek word, monogene, monogenes is probably better rendered as one of a kind or unique. That's what a lot of modern English translations have, and that's fair. But only begotten does preserve some unique truths that we do need to highlight. The Son is only begotten. We mean by this, That he is not created. Begotten, not made, we confess in the Nicene Creed. Neither was he adopted to be the Son of God, like you and I are adopted to be children of God. And we also mean by this, not just that he is one of a kind, unique, but only begotten, he is also Like his father, he's made of the same stuff. Just like a son shares in the DNA of his dad. The whole nature of the father is in the son. He is light of light, true God of true God. So therefore in the son, we do come to know the father. We see the father's love, the father's power, the father's glory. In church history, especially in early church history, also in the cults, this is very much attacked. The Arians, they thought to see Christ as fully divine takes away from the Father's glory. God should be so high, exalted above us, they thought. God could never have a son. Certainly not a son who was fully like him, and yet who came to this earth who took on flesh and blood, 
who, who sweated, who had to go to the bathroom? Doesn't that degrade God, they said? And we need to remember this too as we approach Christmas. What a radical thing Christmas is. Muslims, for instance, completely disown this. They think this is blasphemous. They even have a word for it, sure. To somehow think that God could become one of us. And so in early church times, there were some who said the Son of God was only like the Father. He was of a similar substance, but not of the same substance. In the Greek language, you just have to have add one letter, an iota, to go from same to similar. And some have later on then said this whole debate in church history was nothing more than just about a single letter, an I. Of course, it was so much more than that. Others said that Son, that was something Jesus became while he was here on earth. He was born as a man, simply as a man. But he proved himself to be such a godly, even a perfect man, that God made him his son. And that heresy is called adoptionism. It was taught by the likes of Paul of Samosata. That's mentioned in the Belgian Confession. The scripture says Christ is the only begotten And scripture makes it very clear. This relationship between the Father and the Son existed before anything was made from eternity. In John 3, Christ tells us, God so loved the world that he gave up his one and only or his only begotten Son. And do you see then how Wonderful it is to know what this word actually means. If it simply means that God gave up a man who later on would become his son. So much of scripture, the gospel is emptied of its wonder. God gave up his one and only son. The son who was not inferior to him in any way. The Son, who is part of the very same nature and essence as the Father. The Son whom the Father enjoyed and loved from eternity. That one and only Son was given up. What love God has shown the likes of you and me. But the Arians... And then also the modern Arians, who would be the Jehovah's Witnesses, they had their arguments, their scripture passages. One of them from Colossians 1. In Colossians 1, in the midst of this great hymn about the Lord Jesus Christ, it's rather shocking that Jehovah's Witnesses sort of turn it on its head. And they use Colossians 1 to pull the Lord Jesus Christ lower. Because Paul there says, well, that Christ is the firstborn of all creation. 
That's verse 15. Doesn't that clearly say? Firstborn of all creation, Christ, the Son, is part of creation. The firstborn of a family belongs to the rest of the children. The firstborn is a child as well. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, in fact, in their own Bible translation, they add the word other four times as well to the rest of these verses that follow to make things clear. Like, for by him all other things were created to make it clear that he belongs to the creation as well. So what do we do with this? He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Certainly this word does mean firstborn. But don't get sort of fooled by sort of the components of this word as if he is then born first. Firstborn. What does that mean in Scripture? How does the Bible use that word? Well, what's special about the firstborn? You might know the firstborn was the special heir. And that's then what this word comes to mean at times. Sometimes being born first is not even in the picture. In rabbinic writings, writings, Jewish writings, God himself is sometimes called the firstborn. Meaning that he is the owner, the ruler, the Lord of all. Or in Psalm 89, 27, we sang from Psalm 89, the psalmist says God appointed David to be his firstborn. And you know, David was technically the last born in his family. The next line in Psalm 89 explains what this means. That he is the highest of the kings of the earth. Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That doesn't mean that he is the first of all of God's creatures. It means something so much greater than that. It means that he is the heir of all things, all of creation, every single snowflake that falls, that blows around, is in his hands. You and I then never need to fear anything in this world. That's what the Colossians needed to hear. That's what we need to hear as well. You can rejoice. All things in this world are in the hands of your Savior. You can be busy with very created things as well, daily things. You know Christ owns everything. And there will be a new creation as well through him and through his work. What about some of those other passages that Joseph's Witnesses love to quote? Maybe you know what those are. Things like John 14, 28, the Father is greater than I. Or John 5.19, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. You might say, the father is greater than I. Well, isn't Jesus also human? So in that sense, the father certainly is greater than he is. But there's a little bit more to it than that. There are all these texts that show the Lord Jesus Christ truly became 
a servant. And his desire was to do the will of the Father. The Jews sort of thought that he was a crazy man seeking his own glory, doing his own thing. But Christ responds constantly saying he has placed himself as a servant under the will of the Father. His life and his death is all about the Father. He did not come into this world to do his own thing. He perfectly expresses the Father's will, the Father's heart, the Father's love, the Father's power. The point is, so that when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to know that we truly do know God. We do see God in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a prophet, even the greatest prophet in a long line. He's not just an angel, even the greatest of angels like the archangel Michael. No, he is the son. The son who can reveal the father to us. Those who know the Lord Jesus Christ know and see God. We can have that confidence and that joy. So do you see then why this confession about the Lord Jesus Christ is so critical? I mean, if you do not understand the Lord Jesus Christ, if you do not accept who he he is, you have no business talking about God. If you do not honor the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not honor God. No one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. If the Lord Jesus Christ is not big in your mind, in your life, in your heart, heart, then God, God is not big in your mind or life or heart. And that takes us to our second point. Christ is not only the firstborn of all creation, says Paul, He's also the firstborn from the dead. And here too, we shouldn't just simply think that he is the first. It means that he is the ruler of those who are raised from the dead. That he's the Lord, not only of creation, but also of the church. Now in the time of the Colossians, there were others who claimed to be Lord. Caesar, for instance, he also claimed to be God. It seems to me that there were others that the Colossians were tempted to think had power over them, over their lives. Perhaps evil spirits, perhaps angels or demons in some sort of superstitious way. The Colossians, they needed to know power, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. They needed to know that there was no reason to fear any emperor or any evil spirit. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God, is their Lord. Now the Colossians had been taught this by Paul. 
And on one level, they accepted this and they knew this. But it's like they were not entirely committed to it. They believed that Jesus certainly was Lord, but it's almost like they said, well, Jesus Christ takes away my sins, so I do not have to worry about my eternal destiny. But in the here and now of my day-to-day life, I need something else. For the Colossians then, it seems to have meant that they were very attracted to, let's say, going down to the market and buying little amulets that had things written on them, sort of like spells. Things that would keep away evil spirits, things that might bless you in your work. Sure, Jesus, he forgives my sins. I believe that. But I still need some good luck charms to keep away illnesses, to make sure my business goes well. Paul has to challenge the Colossians. Jesus Christ, your Savior, is Lord. Also here in the now. All things hold together in Him. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. The whole universe holds together in Him. Do we know that? Do we know that all things are in the hands of our Savior? Do we believe that all things are held together in Him? All things find their meaning and purpose and significance and place only in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you believe that your life is held together in your Savior? Or is it, okay, I believe in Jesus when I'm standing at the graveside? Sure. But in my day-to-day life, Mm, I think my life holds together because of my smarts, because of my bank account. Is our confession something like, well, no, my life holds together because, you know, at least at some point I get to sit down and relax and sit in front of a screen and scroll through some things. Every Sunday we confess that Christ is Lord. We sing or say that in the creed. That means that we need to trust he truly is Lord. It means that we need to know our lives are in his hands and our lives find, well, they're held together in him. We need to know him more and more. We need to submit to him. We need to look to him. Christ owns us head to toe, in him we find. As Paul will say then in Colossians 2, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is how we find life, by finding our Savior and what we have in him. 
It also means then that we will not bow to the lords of our world. Early Christians knew that there was a line to be drawn. Very much they honored the emperor, but they would not show their allegiance to him. And every generation has to sort of discover what that line is. But there is a line. Christ is our Lord. And therefore we do not show allegiance to the things of this world. We will carefully acknowledge that yes, we submit to earthly authorities. But yet no earthly ruler is really our Lord. But only the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians, for instance, would draw the line. They would not offer incense to the emperor. They knew that that was crossing the line. They would not offer incense to the emperor, even though it got them crucified. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that if Christ is Lord, well, then we learn to live differently with each other. Jews and Gentiles are one as they acknowledge one Lord. Masters and slaves are one because together they have one Lord. In our relationships with each other, here in the church, this is also where we acknowledge that Christ is Lord. It means that we do away with pride, or ridicule, or scorn. It means that we learn to treat others with great respect because we know that we all together have a Lord. We never place ourselves above each other. It means that we truly learn to serve each other. We truly honor each other because then we honor Christ. The Lordship of Christ must mean that we resolve to live differently with each other. But above all, as the Catechism points out, the dominant note of knowing Christ is Lord, that's comfort. Christ has bought us, ransomed us, made us his own possession. You can hear echoes in answer 34 here of Lord's Day 1, a theme that you find running throughout the Catechism, which of course was again rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. When you rediscover the greatness of Christ, then you discover the greatness too of the comfort and the assurance that we can have as his Christians then are not merely those who are forgiven. Although who can minimize that? Christians are hardly just those who are going to heaven one day. Although who can minimize that? Christians are those who have been ransomed, who have been bought by the blood of the Son of God. Christ is our Lord. We have been delivered. We are in this world, but we are not of this world. We live now within the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ. That new kingdom, 
ruled by the Lord Jesus Christ. That new kingdom where God's love for his one and only son is like the sun in the sky. The kingdoms of man are full of corruption and selfishness. The kingdoms of man can be very dark and evil. But the kingdom of God is filled and ruled by the Father's love for the Son. The Lord Jesus Christ basks in that love and rules with that love as well. No fear then should ever really find root in our hearts. No temptation to live the way our world lives, which essentially is nothing but a big coping mechanism, managing its problems and its concerns, but never dealing with them. We look to the king that we have who has delivered us. Do you believe this? Do you know this? We are so used to the words. But do we realize this treasure that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ? God's only begotten Son, our Lord. Amen.